kick out the jams, motherfucker. All the way back in the first episode of Stripes Season 1, you heard a little bit from Brother Wayne Kramer of the MC5, and I mean just a little bit. There's only a couple of clips. But the thing is, uh, we talked a lot longer than that, and he had plenty to say about Detroit, uh, the MC5, how interest in the scene eventually developed, and then a a few other things, too. For the final bonus episode from Season 1, I wanted you to hear what he had to say. It doesn't deal much with the White Stripes until the end, but, you know, it's Wayne Kramer, so it's important. Without further ado, here's the final bonus episode for Season 1 of Striped, The Story of the White Stripes. And now it is my pleasure to welcome... Are you ready? Are you guys ready to pray at the altar? Are you ready to testify? things with Wayne started off with the discussion of the glory days of the Detroit rock scene, some of which you heard in episode one, back when the MC5, the Stooges, and other folks were really going at it, and it looked like things were about to blow up. But according to Wayne... It didn't so much much blow up as it just withered away. You know, the... The, uh, the the during its peak years, you know, at the Grandy Ballroom on in 68, 69, 70, it was the most exciting place to be in the whole world. You know, Detroit still had that sense of uh, anything was possible, that we could make it happen if you just worked hard and and uh, made a total commitment that you could you could create something from nothing, um, and it was really a time that it was really spectacular. I mean, it was a great time to be a young person uh, in Detroit, and for me to be in a band and have a good steady gig and a following, and you know, being part of uh, a community of, of other musicians and be respected and, and thought well of, um, just created a, a, a great, it was a great time to be alive. Even though being involved in the Motor City scene around the late 60s was amazing, Wayne was quick to remind me that it didn't translate to actual success in the music business. Let's not forget the fact that the MC5 was not a hit band. You know, we never pulled the golden horseshoe out of our ass. We never you know, achieve that, that hit record, that, you know, that hit TV appearance that changed everything. You know, the, the band was hugely popular in the Detroit area and in the Midwest in general, you know, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Chicago, Buffalo, Cincinnati, we could play all those places and do really well. But the rest of the country and the rest of the world, they get their their information from, you know, the radio and from media. And the MC5 never cracked the radio. In fact, we were banned from having our music on the radio. So, you know, influences that were out there in the ether uh, affecting people um, didn't include the MC5 for a long time. Just the musicians. The musicians were the ones that studied you know, that connected the dots backwards that said, well, geez, I like this band, the Ramones. Who do they like? 
And then you start tracing the, the dots backwards and you start to see that a lot of the roads head back to Detroit and they head back to the MC5 and the Stooges. I mean, not so much the musicians of that generation of, of the 60s. They, uh, they didn't care for the MC5 much because they all had to follow us. <laughs> and nobody relished that idea because we were just, you know, the strongest live performing band in the world. I mean, the Rolling Stones are pretty good. The Who's pretty good. The Beatles weren't gigging anymore. But besides those bands, I don't think there was anyone out there that could come close to the level of, of uh, excitement that we could generate with electric guitars and a crowd full of people. Um, uh, so the, those bands, you know, they kind of, everyone had a great opinion about the MC5 and, and a, a lot of it was uh, snarky. Uh, but you're right, it, uh, the rest of the world, um, the rest of the world took some time catching up, like 30 or 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> and when I asked Wayne why exactly the MC5 didn't make it big, he had some thoughts. I, I have a theory about that. And, and that it, it has to do with John Sinclair being sentenced to nine and a half to 10 years in prison. John was the, our interlocutor to the outside world. And, and John had the charisma and the, the wherewithal, the, the fundamental intelligence to be able to talk to record company types and book and agency types and, and be persuasive and sell them on this band, the MC5. And then we could follow up and deliver on, on his, his uh, promise. Um, but when John went to prison, there was nobody minding the store. You know, we didn't have Bill Graham or, or any of those East Coast um, promoters that were, you know, running the concert business. Um, and so we're left to our own devices. And, you know, we were insane <laughs> as, as people to deal with. You could hardly speak to us. We were off in a, in a marijuana-addled um, um, uh, grandiose fantasy about what the world we lived in. And uh, so, you know, we were really unmanageable and incapable of moving things forward on a strictly business level. That's certainly what, what broke the back of the MC5. I mean, just, just getting banned from the radio wouldn't have stopped a Bill Graham. You know, he would have found a way to... to push his artists through, uh, wouldn't have stopped Peter Grant, you know, <laughs> but it stopped us because we didn't have anyone. We didn't have a Peter Grant. We didn't have a Bill Graham. That ultimately meant that Detroit acts like Bob Seger and Ted Nugent, who, and I am purely editorializing here, were much less deserving, became the household names people associated with the city, and Wayne had to watch it all from far away, very far away. I mean, that whole period there in the 70s, I was in the penitentiary for, for a good chunk of that. So I missed a lot of it. 
I mean, I observed it as best I could from from prison, but um, yeah, it didn't it didn't seem like anything really was was emerging of of uh, of interest until punk hit, and uh, the, you know all that happened while I was locked up. So I had to do a little catch up when I got back, and and uh, and try to get up to speed with uh, all the you know the, the the emergence of punk. That catching up Wayne Kramer referred to a minute ago involved a short-lived band with New York punk paragon Johnny Thunders called Gang War. I met Thunders, and he had this idea about a new band, and I, I was in, I was in massive denial about the the negativity of uh, opiate abuse, and although I was clean when I first got out, Johnny wasn't, and we started to have a band together. And in my, in my delusion, I thought that the music or the force of my personality would be enough to, to, to uh, get him on the good foot. And of course, I, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was completely off the mark and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't change him any more than I could change myself under the conditions that I was in. So um, that, that, you know... We had developed that band motto, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> then a little after Gang War fizzled, Wayne started to notice a bit of a resurgence in the MC5's popularity. In general, uh, we were kind of off the radar for uh, 10 years there, I guess. But then it started to come back with the uh, mid-80s and into the 90s, especially with the Seattle bands, Soundgarden and Mudhoney and, uh, and Nirvana and Chili Peppers to a lesser degree, all, all dapped up the MC5. And it was really, uh, you know, it's always nice to be recognized for your work. That appreciation only grew from there, with a broader swath of music fans becoming aware of the five and the band's cultural cachet growing which went through the roof in the early aughts when Levi's licensed MC5 merch and brought it to the masses. Sure, that eventually led some longtime fans to accuse the band of selling out, but for Wayne and the rest of the living members at the time, it was more like an opportunity to finally do what they planned back in the late 60s. Take their music and the spirit of Detroit all over the globe. It was kind of shocking, really, (laughs) that... You know, Levi's had already produced this line of clothing that was MC5 themed. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was well impressed and and turns out that they were great people and the clothes were made in America uh, back then anyway. And uh, we were, I was, you know, completely comfortable with um, doing a deal with them. And we got to make a record and, and revive interest in the band and... Um, Dennis and Mike got to tour the world um, for Michael, you know, it was towards the, you know, his, the twilight of his, of his day. And he had some great adventures and he played some great gigs. And I was really pleased about that, that, that the two of them could, could come out and, and, you know, really feel what it was like to, to be recognized for the work that we all did back when we were kids. 
it, uh, you know, Levi's really did us a solid in that regard. Now, once Wayne and I talked through some of those major signposts in his career and in the life of the MC5, he really wanted to talk about the White Stripes and what they meant to him. I would go so far as to say that um, Jack White has turned out to be a, a, a friend, and he's really been a great um, MC5 booster. He always um, daps us up. He always uh, says good things about us and the influence that the music had on his work. And, uh, you know, for a musician, uh, it doesn't get any better. I mean, praise from our peers is how we judge ourselves um, as artists. And if uh, other people like what I did, the, the, do the same kind of work that I do, um, then I'm, I couldn't be happier. And uh, he's just been uh, really uh, a, a great supporter. And I, I think that in, in my uh, humble opinion, he really was one of the first people to really um, understand what the MC5's message was. Not just the sound of distorted guitars and ranting and raving, but that the idea was be creative, come up with your own voice, your own sound. And that's what the White Stripes did. That's what made them revolutionary is when a White Stripes record came on, you knew it was nobody but the White Stripes. They sounded completely original. And that's always been the, the message of the MC5. It's a message I carry today, you know, to, to make a total commitment to what you're doing. You know, kick out the jams, motherfucker. Get in it with both feet, uh, full measures. And that's what they did. And, and um, you know, this wonderful success that they've enjoyed um, is proof that, uh, that that originality is the most important thing that we do as artists. And, uh, and uh, White Stripes did a bang-up job of it. Top shelf, to quote Jack White. Top shelf. That's all we've got for this bonus episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production support from Mark Charles and Kojin Tashiro. And as always, the biggest thanks of all goes to the White Stripes themselves, Jack and Meg White, because without them, none of this would be possible. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. See you next time. Mm -hmm.